If you're new with us, we started uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, last week, and uh, we're continuing on, uh, Lord willing, for many months uh, to come. <clears throat> and this morning, we arrive at the text that Matt just read for us, uh, Mary's beautiful song. Um, let's uh, pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we look at it. Truly, Father, you have shown mercy in the past, and your mercies are new every morning. And we pray you would be merciful to us again today as you fill the hungry with good things. Would you fill us today with, with gospel joy and gospel hope as we consider Mary's song. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the first of four songs in Advent uh, that Luke gives us in Luke 1 and 2. Uh, this is traditionally called the Magnificat, uh, which comes from the, the word magnifies uh, in Latin. Uh, and following this song from Mary comes Zechariah's Benedictus, which we'll look at next week. After that is the angels, Gloria, in chapter 2, verse 14, which we hope to look at on uh, Christmas Eve. And then Simeon's song uh, in chapter 2, verse 29 uh, to 32 follows that. And then, of course, we have Anna, who also praises God. We have the shepherds who praise God. And so the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke is really an explosion of joy and praise, and rightly so. Uh, the good Dr. Luke is the first hymnologist of the church. He is quick to talk about singing. And Luke understands, as, as we should understand, that what God has done must be sung. And you think about it, you look at these two songs, the Magnificat and Zechariah's Benedictus, you could actually cut them out and you would lose nothing in the narrative flow. So why would Luke include them? I think Luke is showing us how we respond to this narrative. How do we respond to the coming of Jesus Christ with love and adoration to God? That's what we do. And here it is that we find the secret to joy in life, to magnify God, to make much of God, to be satisfied in God. The popular idea today is to maximize joy, you need to minimize God. But the biblical truth is, to maximize joy, you need to magnify God. Your joy runs parallel to your degree of, of magnifying our God. Mary was the first one to really come up with the Westminster Confession, I think. Right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, they got that from Mary. That's what she's doing here, right? She is, she is magnifying God. She is enjoying God. She's satisfied in God. And this, my friends, is the real Christmas spirit, isn't it? It's very common these days to hear people talk about, are you in the Christmas spirit? I asked my son last, uh, last week, I said, have you bought all your Christmas presents yet? Knowing that he hasn't, nor have I. Um, <laughs> but he says, I'm not in the Christmas spirit yet, Dad. <laughs> I'm like, well, walk outside and look at the lights and then buy your present. You'll get in the Christmas spirit, won't you? What is it that, that thrills you this time of year? Is it the decorations or, uh, you know, the new Nintendo that you're wanting or watching Cousin Eddie for the, for the 15th time or you'll shoot your eye out, you know? Um, well, you've missed the spirit of Christmas if you miss Jesus. It would be like having a birthday party without the birthday boy present. And that's what a lot of people do this time of year. It is a birthday party without the birthday boy being present. Now, Christmas is all about the exaltation of God, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, 
and all that he has for us in Jesus Christ. Because Christmas itself will not satisfy you. Only Christ will satisfy you. Satisfaction of the soul cannot be worked up from below. It has to come down from above. And that's what God has done to us. We call that grace. This satisfaction has come to us because of his grace. And if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, this is a great passage for you to consider because it really highlights some of the major themes about the, Christ, uh, the, the Christian story, the Christian message. As one pastor calls it, Mary on the Christian life here. And so I pray that you would be engaged and mentioned last week. Luke is a great book to study when it comes to having a certainty about our faith. And today he wants us to have certainty about uh, this meeting that Mary has with Elizabeth and the song and, and all that follows. So I want us to look at her song, but first notice two points uh, from her visit with her relative Elizabeth. The first being the need for fellowship, verses 39 to 40. We see that Mary, in uh, verse 39, rose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in uh, Judah. This is a long journey. This would have been somewhere around 70 to 100 miles. A rugged wasteland that this teenage girl would have hiked through. Very impressive for a young girl, right? Serena Williams has nothing on Mary. <laughs> she remained there at the end of the text, you see in verse 56, for about three months with Elizabeth. And so it was a real sacrifice to get there, but she deemed it to be worth it. Fellowship is worth it, but fellowship always requires sacrifice, right? My friend Brian Loritz recently said, the problem with how we view community and relationships is that we want Nordstrom quality community at thrift store prices. We just don't like to be inconvenienced. Well, that's a good line, is it? There has to be some degree of sacrifice to have fellowship with, with other people. Mary definitely thought it was worth it, and so she hikes up to, to Judah. And in verse 40, we see that they, uh, she enters the house and greets Elizabeth. This has been called before the, the visitation. The, how, how God has, has met with these two ladies, touched them by his grace, and now they have this very unique, you know, once-in-history in kind of meeting as Elizabeth, the one we looked at last week, was, was old and barren, uh, a social and economic problem. But by God's gracious intervention, she's now six months pregnant. As Mary arrives, she's waiting to give birth to John the Baptist. Mary has just conceived. And so they're probably now left alone to visit with each other. Can you imagine that conversation? Remember, Zechariah, her husband, uh, had, was made mute because of his initial unbelief at the promise. And so someone has said that Elizabeth had two blessings now, right? <laughs> a baby and a mute husband. <laughs> so whatever, every, it's not very nice, is it? It's not very nice. I didn't say that. I'm quoting someone. Uh, and so the, 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 woman here, uh, the, the women here discuss the news of, of John, the forerunner, Jesus, the Messiah. And we're not given a lot of details like, did someone accompany Mary? We would hope that someone went with this teenage girl. <laughs> I mean, parents today have a hard enough time putting one of their children on a plane uh, with, with protection and so on. But in, we're not given that. We're not told exactly where Elizabeth lived in, in Judah. But what Luke does want us to note, I think, is the urgency of fellowship on Mary's part. Catch that in verse 39. She went with haste. 
And there was nothing in the previous text that said that she had to do this. She was told about Elizabeth. Um, She was given a word from the angel that she's going to bear the Son of God. She lets no grass grow under her feet. She wants to see Elizabeth. She undoubtedly thought this would be comforting and encouraging. And it's very likely that Elizabeth was the only one she could talk to. I mean, how would she broach this subject with her parents? In, in Hebrew culture especially. Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant. But don't worry, I saw an angel. And I'm going to give birth to the Son of God. <laughs> one commentator says, In her own environment, she would naturally not yet be able to discuss with anyone the sacred experiences that had befallen her. In Elizabeth, however, she would find an understanding person. Because these two stories are are running together, and and Elizabeth has been touched by grace as well. And it's interesting, isn't it, that even though these women are divinely blessed, appearances of angels have happened, they still need fellowship with one another. Even though you might have some miraculous personal encounter, this doesn't diminish the need for community, doesn't diminish the need for fellowship. The need for fellowship is not a sign of weakness in our lives. It's a sign of maturity in our lives. These are two mature ladies spending three months together. And one of the reasons we gather in large and small settings, as Hebrew says, is to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And undoubtedly, these ladies would have done that for each other. And I love how we have both a younger and an older saint together here. It's good to have the older saints in your life as a younger person and, and vice versa. It's a great ministry to be a spiritual aunt or uncle in some young person's life, to be kind of an Uncle, uncle Phil on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Bel- uh, only with a more spiritual motivation and, and uh, so on, uh, a gospel-centered Phil. Uh, so here we have the, the need for fellowship. It's a good reminder for us that even though uh, one may be spiritually mature and, and have uh, personal encounters with God, we still need each other. That's how we're made. Secondly, we see here the joy of redemption. In verses 41 to to 45, uh, we read in the text, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So the baby John leaps in Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth gets a, a kick out of this greeting that she receives. And I think Luke here is wanting us to see that the sheer joy of these events I mean, the gospel comes forth with joy in Luke 1 and 2. I love that. It's good news. Good news leads us to joy. The dawning of the messianic age leads us to joy. We look at next week the beautiful song from uh, Zechariah, how redemption means deliverance from enemies, life without fear, the decisive forgiveness of sins, and that thrills our hearts. How could they not respond with joy? How could we not respond with joy? Sometimes we sing that song, Joy to the World, and I don't know if you've ever paid much attention to the line we repeat, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Think about that. Where is the curse found? Everywhere. What will he renew? Everything. He's coming to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's the second advent that we wait on, right? And that brings joy to the world. A comprehensive renewal is coming 
as God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And when you ponder this, it brings you joy. And you see in verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. There's no jealousy, only joy. No bitterness, but happiness. The mother of my Lord, why should the mother of my Lord come to me? There's humility in Elizabeth, there's awe, there's wonder, and there is, isn't it, an early expression of the Lordship of Jesus. The mother of my Lord who has come to me. Notice again Luke's emphasis on the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth filled with the Spirit. Next week we see verse 67, Zechariah filled with the Spirit. God is at work as the, the messianic age has dawned. And by the inward witness of the Spirit, now verse 44, unborn John leaps for joy. I love this when it says, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. We noted last week, Luke is very quick to call this a baby in the womb. It's a person in the womb, a person that we looked at last week that would be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. And now John is preaching a sermon from the womb, right? He, he's, his leaping here is a preview of his ministry to come. He would exalt Jesus Christ. He would point people to Jesus Christ even from the womb. He would be kicking. That's him. That's the Messiah. What a, what a life John is. He's not Jesus. We're to see the superiority of Jesus through Luke 1 and 2. But when you think about it, he is a wonderful shining example for all of us to point people to Jesus Christ. His bold and courageous and faithful preaching would eventually get him executed. Here he is leaping for joy before the, uh, the Messiah. And that's what the coming of Jesus does for everyone who has eyes to see. It makes us, too, leap for joy. Amen. So if you're not a Christian, have you trusted in this Messiah experiencing the joy of salvation? This is why Jesus came into the world. This is why Luke wrote his gospel that we would have assurance of these things. Not just of the conception of Jesus, but also of the crucifixion and the resurrection that he will write about. And all who call upon the name of this Lord, Jesus Christ, will be saved and can know the thrill of redemption. Well, verse 45 ends when Luke says, and blessed is, he, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord's. She's not worshiping Mary. She doesn't do that anywhere in this text, but she does bless her, blesses her faith. She encourages her. She, she knew that Mary took God at his word, and she honors her. This is a great ministry for all of us to encourage each other and to honor each other, to encourage one another when you see someone embracing the promises of God, living by faith. And so we see the need for fellowship in this meeting. We see the joy of redemption that just bubbles out in many different ways in this text. And now, thirdly, we see this song of worship that follows afterwards, verses 46 to 55. Mary may have composed this ahead of time, perhaps on her journey. She had a lot of time to do that. And it, too, is an explosion of joy. N.T. Wright, the scholar, says about the Magnificat these words, It's the gospel before the gospel. A fierce, bright shout of triumph, 30 weeks before Bethlehem, 30 years before Calvary and Easter. It goes with a swing and a clap and a stamp. It's all about God and it's all about revolution. And it's all because of Jesus. Jesus, who's only just been conceived, not yet born, 
but who has made Mary giddy with excitement and hope and triumph. In many cultures today, writes right, it's the women who really know how to celebrate, to sing and dance with their bodies and voices saying things far deeper than words. That's how Mary's song comes across here. You can just see this, this young lady, righteous before God, experiencing the grace of God in an unfathomable way, expressing praise here. And I want you to see it, uh, three things about it here in just a moment, but, but first, notice a few things about it as you look at the whole. This, this song of worship is wholehearted, it's personal, it's God-centered, and it's Bible-saturated. It's wholehearted. You see, Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's worshiping with, with all that she is. What is it today that would make you celebrate from the depths of your being something without inhibition? Someone says you have no debt, no cancer. Whatever that thing is, it would make you explode into worship. She, her worship is wholehearted. I love how the, the scripture writers tell us to, to make melody to the Lord with our hearts. That's good news for us who, who can't sing. We can make melody with our hearts. This worship is also personal. My soul, she says. This is, this is my song. And that's, the, that's what all of us can say who are believers in Jesus. Christmas is historical. Things happen. It's theological. There are things to believe, but it's intensely personal. It's, it's my soul magnifies the Lord. It's God-centered. The focus is on the Lord. All you have to do is look at the pronoun he that runs throughout this song. She praises God for who he is, for what he has done, and what he will do. She sings of God's attributes, his mercy, his might, his holiness, and she sings of God's actions. And that's what all worship should be about, right? To focus on the greatness of our God. I love the little quip when uh, someone at Francis Chan's church came up and was complaining and said, we didn't like worship very much today, pastor. And he said, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. <laughs> our worship is not about us, is it? It's about the greatness of our God. There's a God-centeredness. There's, there's a real ring of the Psalms to this song, isn't it? I love Psalm 34, 3. Oh, come and magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's the verse I cited to my wife when I proposed to her. Sitting in Arlington Cemetery. Don't laugh. It's a long story. And there I said, will you come and magnify the Lord with me in marriage? That's what our lives are about. Lord, be magnified in my life, in my marriage, in my studies, in my work, in all of life. And you think about the context of this song, Mary has a lot to be freaked out about. <laughs> she has a lot to worry about. I mean, we're all under pressure in this room, and we don't want to minimize anyone's pressure. But she's about to give birth to the Son of God. <laughs> you don't want to mess this up, right? But she can replace worry with worship one way, by contemplating the being of God. And I think one of the, the problems of our anxiety, not all, but many, is the lack of concentrated thought on the nature and character and work of God. Amen. This, this, this song is good for your anxiety. 
It is good for your fear. It is good for your sorrow. It is good for all of the struggle of life. Because when we take truth to struggle and we allow it to have its effect in our hearts, it leads us to joy that we didn't have before. This is a God-centered song. It's a Bible-saturated song. As you look at the lyrical depth of this song, you're really struck by it. It's not like a lot of pop Christian music, is it? As Mike Bird says, Jesus, Jesus, you're terrific. For you, I'd swim the Pacific. Yeah, baby, yeah, baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a lot of the lyrics we hear today, isn't it? <laughs> For you, I'd swim the Pacific. <laughs> That's better than some of the songs, actually, isn't it? You know, and some songs are, are sentimental around this time of year. They're lullaby-sounding. But, but Mary's song blends a theology of redemption with beautiful artistic poetry. And, and, and great truth deserves great poetry. It goes down. Makes us think carefully. And some have even argued, there's no way Mary could write this song. After all, she's just a teenager. How could she write with such depth? And I think the answer to that is very, very simple. Mary knew her Bible. She knew her Bible. She had grown up with uh, the, the scriptures being read. She had been to synagogue. And when you look at James's book, uh, his epistle, and Jesus' teaching, you see many of, these, of their themes found in this song. It's an example of passing on, I think, teaching from generation to generation. And this song is uh, it's filled with Old Testament allusions and phrases. You hear echoes of Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and more. And the most obvious allusion is to Hannah's song, one who, who bears similarity to Mary, who was, was barren and could not have a child and did have a very significant child in redemptive history. In fact, I think that we have a, a, a helpful little chart there. I'm not going to read those verses, but just to, to illustrate how the, the, the thoughts and the themes and the ideas running through Hannah's song after she conceives is, are the ideas and themes and thoughts that run through Mary's song. She may have meditated on Hannah's song as she made that arduous journey up to Judah. No doubt, as a young lady, she loved the stories about young ladies in the Bible. And so Mary had meditated on the scriptures. And sometimes we hear that, that children today or, or kids today cannot learn theology. And we just want to point them to the Magnificat and say, yes, they can. And if they can order off the Starbucks menu, they can learn a few theological terms, right? <laughs> Let's raise the bar a bit uh, on this adolescent culture that we live in. I think Mary's song is an illustration of Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms, songs and hymns and spiritual songs. As the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we respond with worship. That's what worship is, isn't it? It's a response to the revelation of God. And if our worship is stale, it may be because we haven't meditated on God's truth sufficiently. And so here I want you to see three truths for which we also praise God today, that Mary praises God for. First of all, God's grace. Secondly, God's ways. And thirdly, God's promises. Let's join in this song as we think about God's grace. The opening here is Mary's own testimony, but we can share in many of the things that she says. As she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on generations will call me blessed. 
Here is God's grace. Mary is a nobody. She is from a nowhere place. And God Almighty visited her, lifted her by his sovereign grace. He didn't come to major department stores or to Times Square or to a stretch limo. He came to this teenage peasant girl in an obscure town. In grace, he has sent Jesus to be our Savior. You notice Mary needs a Savior like everyone else. Rejoices in God, my Savior. What grace. In grace, he has looked upon us with favor. Verse 48. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. This teenager has discovered God's grace. And isn't it around your teenage years you begin to wonder, does anyone see me? Does God know about me and care about me? Does God have a purpose for me? And Mary says, he knows you. He sees you. His son came to die for you. And by faith in him, he lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is grace, that he would look upon us with favor. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Indeed, we do. We do not deify Mary, but we honor Mary. And we say she had a unique role in redemptive history, unlike anyone else. And it wasn't, though, because of her merit. It was because of God's grace. God had favor on this young lady. And in grace, we can say like Mary, verse 49, he has done great things for me. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The message of Christmas is not good advice, but good news of what God has done. You can hear an echo of Deuteronomy here. This is uh, 10, 21. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great things. The one who has done great things for us is our praise. The mighty God who has done wonderful things for us and holy is his name. He is a cut above. He is set apart. He is different. He is absolutely perfect. Absolutely sinless. He is holy, holy, holy. The angels continue to say, right? There is no one like our God. This is the very essence of who he is. Holy is his character. Holy is his name. And when we consider his holiness, we see our sinfulness and we marvel at his grace that we by faith can be declared holy in Jesus Christ. We are in the Holy One today. That's why he has lifted our shame we just sung about and he has replaced it with his righteousness. We sing with Mary of God's grace. We sing with Mary of God's ways, verses 50 to 53. There's a shift here to, to the kind of general tendencies of God, the way God works from generation to generation. His mercy is for those who fear him. That's one of the ways that God works. He is a merciful God. He is a faithful, loving God. As the psalmist says, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is with me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy as we honor him, as we treat him as he deserves, as we fear him, as we walk humbly before him by faith. It's a, a strong note of humility all the way through Luke's gospel, as we're going to see, and it begins right here at the Nativity. It begins right in the early chapters. Augustine put it well when he says, for those who want to learn God's ways, humility is the first thing 
the second thing, and the third thing. Who, who receives his mercy? The humble. Those who know they need it. He has mercy. Secondly, he humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Verses 51 to 52, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And here it is again. The way God works, that he humbles the proud, he exalts the humble. He has power over the mighty ones on the earth. We move, notice, from his eyes. Mary said he sees me now to the strength of his arm, uh, a, a way of describing the power of God. It is the mighty one who fights for and saves his people. He exalts those of humble estates. Zephaniah 3:17. the Lord God is in your midst. A mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What a thought of God in his love for you, singing over you. No wonder we sing, we're made in the image of our God. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. We look to Pharaoh, we look to Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. But the humble, verse 52b, are exalted. What, what a gift. I love Isaiah 57:15. It tells us the two places that God dwells. For this says the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. That's one place God dwells. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. I, I dwell in the high and holy place, and I also dwell in the meek and lowly place for those who humble themselves before me. It is they who will be exalted. And God's ways also includes the fact that he fills the hungry, verse 53, with good things, but he has sent the rich, that is the, the, the calloused rich, those who are self-satisfied, those who have no need for God in their own mind. They are actually empty, but it's those who are hungry who are satisfied. Think about the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try. What a contrast it is to John Newton's old song. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. Only lasting joy. Only real satisfaction comes when we humble ourselves. And we're hungry for his grace. So notice as you look over that list, verses 51 to 53, you have this theme of reversal. Right? God has taken conventional standards of greatness and he turns them on their heads. Isn't that something? There's an attitude reversal, a social reversal, and a spiritual reversal. Material reversal even. As the strange philosopher Kierkegaard once said about the Gospels, all the price tags have been changed. And Mary was wise enough to sort out the price tags. That is, she understood what mattered and, and what, what doesn't matter. This attitude reversal. He's going to scatter those who have no need of him. They're, they may be proud of their attainments and their capabilities. And it will not bode well with them at future judgment. There's a social reversal. 
God is going to bring down the powerful and exalt the humble. And he does this now, but he will do it at the end as the meek inherit the earth. The meek. And there's a fullness reversal, right? That God satisfies those who are hungry. And those who have no spiritual need in their hearts, they are empty. God really does satisfy the hungry. It's not like when you fly on an airplane and you get the little pack of peanuts. You're starving to death, you know, three hours on a plane. You sort of ration them out on your little tray. I've done this before, and you didn't let a little nibble at a time. And I need something more than a pack of peanuts, man. I've got to have some, some more protein. God satisfies our hearts. Power won't satisfy us. Money won't satisfy us. Worldly pleasures won't satisfy us. All poor substitutes. Only the God who made us will satisfy us. And we want to invite the whole world to this, don't we? It's like when you're cooking, and let's say you're, you're maybe smoking a pork shoulder, and you, you work on it, and you just can't wait to, to bite into it and see it fall off that bone. Or at least you're hoping it falls off the bone. And, and when, you, when you get a piece of it, and it's, it's just magical. You can't keep it to yourself. Surely you don't keep it to yourself, right? You, you want other people to eat on this pork shoulder with you. And we who have been satisfied, Ed knows, right? Ed wants an invite to my house. That's what he's doing out there. You can come over, bro. Uh, I smoked a turkey this year. It was quite good, actually. Um, but we want other people to enjoy our God. We cannot keep this to ourselves. That, that I, we say to our friends, Maybe not in these words, but I don't know what you're trying to be satisfied with. Maybe you do use those words. But you just turn into a rolling stone. You try and you try and you try. And nothing will, nothing will satisfy you. And so we see here how God works, his ways. We see God's grace. Finally, we see God's promises. Verse 54 and 55, we, like Mary, praise God for the fulfillment of his promises. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In his loyal love here, God is keeping his promises. We have a promise-keeping God. Our world is filled with untrustworthy stories, spin stories. But God doesn't play that game. His word is entirely true and trustworthy. What he promised concerning the coming of Christ, he fulfilled. His faithfulness, his mercy. Mary looked all the way back to Abraham as she's pinning this song of Genesis 12, 3. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This was Israel's hope throughout the age that God will topple all the bullies and the oppressors and he will send the Messiah. That God will keep his word. And Jesus is this great offspring and it is through him all the ends of the earth are blessed. The birth of Christ is a continuation of God's faithfulness that began back in Genesis. Mary recognizes, as we should recognize, that the story doesn't start with her. It continues through her. But all the way back in Genesis 3.15, there, what we call the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, there was this promise that one is going to come from the seed of the woman to crush the enemy's head. And we're waiting and waiting all through the Old Testament as this messianic hope is sustained through the narrative. Is this the one? Is this the one? 
And we read of, of Isaiah saying that there's going to be a young virgin who's going to give birth to a son. Where is his son? Who is this woman? And Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, this woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's what Mary's recognizing in this moment. That's what she's recognizing. That's what we recognize. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this baby has put joy in Mary's heart. It's put a song on her lips. And this story puts joy in our hearts, doesn't it? And it puts a song on our lips. The Spurge, Charles Spurgeon, put it like this. So then to conclude, and this is where I conclude, here is something for every child of God to do. You can all magnify the Lord, and you may all rejoice in him. You cannot all preach. If you could, who would be there to hear you? <laughs> if all were preachers, where would be the hearers? But you can all praise God. If there is any brother or sister here who has only one talent, let not such a one say, I cannot do anything. You can magnify the Lord. To be happy in him is to praise God. The mere fact that our being happy in the Lord makes music in his ears. If you are one of his children, you can be happy in him. So get out of those doleful dumps. Cast out that spirit of murmuring and complaint which so often possesses you. Pray the Lord to help you shake off your natural tendency to look on the dark side of everything and say, no, no, I must not do that. After all, I am not on the road to hell. I am on the way to heaven. And this world is the waiting room to heaven. So my soul shall magnify the Lord and my spirit shall rejoice in God, my Savior. Amen. Thank you, Brother Spurge. Amen. Church, let's magnify the Lord. For he has done great things for us. And holy is his name. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of studying your word together in community as brothers and sisters and for meditating on this account of Mary and Elizabeth in this marvelous song that we will return to in our Christian pilgrimage again and again and again as it teaches us so many essential things. And we pray that you would indeed stir us up with fresh joy today, that our souls would magnify you for all that you have done for us. Even now, as we turn our attention to the table, we say with Mary, you have done great things for us. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.